to talk today about mission, about the importance, sort of in a never-increasing way, of being thankful for what Jesus has done for us and the responsibility we have because of what Jesus has done for us. And I want to open with just sort of citing uh, a sociological reality, the way that people relate today in our world. Today we are living in a world where we share information at a, re at a record speed. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Pretty amazing if you actually think about it. We can read a good article, or we can watch a good TV show, or we can see a movie, we can eat at a restaurant, and within seconds, we have the ability to let other people know what we think about that stuff. Facebook allows you to share thoughts about anything at any given time. If you use Twitter and Instagram, they allow for very similar things in a slightly different way, but it's still the same idea. When you go out to a restaurant or uh, you know, frequent a business, there are review sites like Yelp or Google reviews which let people interact with people they have never met in order to understand more about the experiences they had at a certain business or restaurant. People are sharing what's going on. People literally take pictures of what they are about to eat and send them to the world within seconds, usually before they eat the meal while it is getting cold. That's what they do. People share everything today, movies, books, restaurants, health, issues, news, uh, recipes, the list goes on. And what's interesting about this is that the, the world that we live in, okay, is completely hardwired now to share something. We do it in, within seconds. Now all this said, I want to point out an interesting tension that has arisen in the Christian life over the past 10 or 15 years. On one hand, we are in a culture that is largely conditioned to share what matters most, whenever people feel like it, to whomever they feel like doing it with. But on the other hand, over the years, it's become increasingly obvious that for a lot of believers, they are very comfortable sharing what I've just mentioned, the myriad of things I've just mentioned. But they have grown increasingly uncomfortable sharing what is claimed to be as the most important thing in their life, the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. We share like a machine gun, but then when it comes to this most profound truth, right, we have a hard time actually bringing it up or talking about it. Now, I want to restate that in a different way. It's sort of like people having grown accustomed to sharing a great place they like to eat at with somebody or with somebody else because it really matters to them, while in an ironic way, we've grown somewhat increasingly uncomfortable sharing the good news of Jesus in a similar way when God provides an opportunity. And the reason being, they are often too timid. That's a very common thing to hear. Um, it's interesting though, sometimes we're timid in this one area but not in other areas of life, or maybe just as common is they feel like they just don't know how to do it. So it's a, it's a matter of like, fear-based ignorance, and I don't mean ignorance in a derogatory way, I just simply mean people don't know so they don't do it. Now this is really a bit off if you think about it, because if what we say we believe about Jesus is true, we did three whole teachings on this, here's a bit, a bit of a summary. If we believe he is our hope, if we believe that he loves us, that he died for us to redeem us from our sin, if we really do believe that he has redeemed us from the clutches of hell and put us in permanent relationship with God forever, and there's a ton of other things I don't even have time to mention this morning. But if we believe these things are true, if we believe that Jesus is this significant in our lives, then we have to ask why this is such a challenge for so many people. It begs the question, why is it so easy to talk about a good restaurant or a coffee house with others, but so hard for people to talk about Jesus with others? Something's out of sorts there. So no matter what side of the sharing fence you find yourself on today, please know, if you've been here for a while, you know this is a judgment-free zone. I just want you to know that there's a measurable amount of grace no matter what side of the fence you're on. If you don't share or don't know how to share, really do want to share or learn. All I want to point out today is that the share crazy nature of our world really does highlight a common heart attitude for some people. That when we deeply care about something, we are often compelled to live and to sacrifice for it. We are compelled to share it with others, to get excited about it, to take great risks for it, maybe even die for it. 
And this is the premise of what we're studying in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. I taught these verses a couple of years ago, but I want to teach them in much more thoroughness these upcoming weeks. We're going to look at multiple messages out of this text. And to date, we've already talked about what we believe about gospel and community. These are two of the three steps in our discipleship pathway. If you grabbed a cup of coffee in the foyer, you saw those words. The truth of Jesus, the gospel, lived out with the brothers and sisters of Jesus, our, our church family, for the sake of his mission. We've addressed in full gospel and community. We now turn our attention over these next weeks to the third step in our pathway, mission. And in many ways, our understanding of and desire to participate in Jesus' mission is the natural overflow of a heart that is deeply rooted in Jesus, believes in Christ, and lives out the gospel and community. In other words, it's kind of fair to say that the depth of our understanding of what Jesus has done for us should create a bit of a direct outflow. That the burden in which we share that which we have received, the redeeming grace of Christ with others, is sort of a gauge for how deeply we understand and value that redeeming grace in our own lives and hearts. And we see this in John chapter 20, where Jesus firmly establishes and commands us to carry on his redemptive mission in the world in the very same way God sent him to the world. And this teaching is trying to show us that, that just like Christ, when a person truly experiences the love of God, the natural result of that should be a growing desire to share that same love with others. And when I say share, I'm not arguing for some homogenous way to share. I'm not saying that everybody looks the same and does it the same way. I am saying there is, there is a homogenous heart attitude we should be striving for. And that is the, the love within us from Christ should really drive us to love others through our word and our deed. And in a very natural way, we should want to share these things with people in our lives with the same intensity that we often share everything else that is going on in our lives. Amen. And so over these next weeks, we're going to look at God's redemptive mission. And I hope doing so will convince your hearts as to why you should be thankful for it and why we should actually be on it together. The first and foundational truth we'll examine today, it's the only one we'll examine, one belief truth, we'll, it requires a bit of sort of a theological understanding of God's mission. And this really leads me to the first thing that I want to share with you this morning. We believe God has sent us into the world to share his good news in the same way he sent Jesus. That's literally what John tells us here. The words out of Jesus' mouth are, as God sent me, my father sent me, I, I'm going to send you now. And I want to just reread what was read by Wendell a few moments ago. So we get the full crux of this, at least an aspect of it. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is right before his crucifixion. So peace has a lot of connotations here. They're literally being hunted for their lives right now. And after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord again. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Interesting thing that happens here. Jesus is just redeemed the world. And he is now sending them in the same way he has been sent. Now, here's the important thing I want to point out today. For some people, God's mission is just kind of an afterthought in their life. Meaning, the central nature of what Jesus has said here is often less central in our lives. But the very nature of God, the very nature of who Jesus is and what he has done, the very nature of the power of the Holy Spirit, that God has given us his Holy Spirit to, to equip us and to help us accomplish his mission, shows us that this has never been this way for God. There has never been a time where God's mission has been less central to God than it is. It has to be as central to us as it is for God, is what I'm trying to say here. At least we need to strive for that. And this is because this, this whole message revolves around who God is and what he does. So it's important, if we're going to talk about mission, to have a bit of a working definition of what God's mission actually is. So let's begin by defining God's redemptive mission. There, there are a lot of ways to talk about mission, but I want to give us a very practical definition. 
one that highlights the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, and the why's of it. It's behind me. The act of God breaking into the story of humanity and revealing himself to the people of the world in order to redeem and restore those people suffering under the bondage of sin to himself. And so in a very paraphrased way, God intervenes in humanity. He fully understands the brokenness and the fallenness of mankind, and what he does is he inserts himself once again into the world in order to redeem and restore those people suffering from the brokenness that sin created in the garden. And that restoration, this is why we named our church this, that restoration is not just something abstract, it is actually to him himself. Amen. Now, the reason defining this is important is because some people believe that God's mission to bring humanity back to himself is sort of a newer thing, like it happened upon the words that we read from Jesus here and sort of took off in the book of Acts. And while I'm not arguing for the fact that the New Testament mission, the mission of the church certainly you know, goes full speed ahead in the, in the New Testament writings, that's actually not the reality that it began in the New Testament. It's not true. If we believe, go back to the we believe about God talks, if we believe that God is ancient and pre-existent, meaning he's always existent, if we, if we believe that he knows the nature of humanity and what we have done, if we believe that God loves us, what that means is that God has always cared for people and the people of the world. So there was never a time when God could not or did not love us. He knew what was going to happen before we were created. He loved us through that. And even when we transgressed him in significant ways, there's this great story that opens up from the book, in the Bible that begins to show his relentless pursuit of us, despite that. And so God's mission as we know it, it does not begin with Jesus. It certainly is fulfilled in Jesus. But we do a disservice to how important this is to God if we sort of eliminate 60% of the Bible and act like it was not happening in the Old Testament. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know why. The story of God's redemptive mission in the world begins on the very first pages of Genesis. Now, here's a quick summary of that story. The redemptive mission of God, if you want to hear it like in three minutes, okay, in the Old Testament, it goes something like this. In Genesis, we read that God creates a perfect what? So four of you read the Old Testament, and I'm pretty sure you were all right here by the sound of that everything, right? You guys got to cross-pollinate a little bit, right? Right. In the story of the Old Testament, God creates the world, and things are pretty good at the beginning. But we learn very quickly that our desire, our ambition, our desire to sort of Pursue things that are not God as if they are God creates this problem that we know as sin. And that is the nature of all sin. It's essentially when we run after something in our lives as if it were God, hoping it will fulfill and satisfy us in a way that only God can. It's trading and worship is what you're doing. And so this is what happens in the garden. And what, what ends up happening is, is we see mankind walking away from God. And the effects of this sin are so severe that it, it actually goes unchecked for a while. The earth becomes so wicked, the Old Testament tells us, there's so much injustice, and everybody sort of wanted it to remain that way, that God has to judge the world. There's only one person at this point in history, according to the scripture, it's Noah. And so what happens is, is Noah sort of stands as a pillar of righteousness in a world that's really fallen. And what's interesting throughout this whole thing is that we tend to think, oh, well, grace started in the book of Matthew. But the truth is, we see people deeply rejecting God in the Old Testament. And God, it's so bad that God has to sort of judge the earth. But it comes after thousands and thousands of years of God actually calling people back to him. What we see here is that in the earliest chapters of the Bible, there are a people in need of grace, and there is a God who is willing to show it. Now, continuing on in the story, despite the continual rejection of God's grace, in chapter 8, God makes this covenant. After this great judgment, he makes this covenant with Noah to never destroy the earth like that again. And rather, his desire is to bless his creation. 
He gives us another chance. That's what's happening here. To come back to him. Not just to be okay, but to actually be in a relationship with him again. And then in Genesis 12, there's another sort of change in the story. Progresses. God sets the stage for how he would begin to bless the world. It's not just sort of blessing in a particular area of the world or with a particular group of people. God sets apart this guy named Abram. It starts at an individual, and he establishes another covenant with him. And it lays the foundation for the way God's going to reveal his grace and goodness to every generation that will follow him. And through this guy named Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, Father Abraham, if you grew up in a church and sang Sunday school songs, through Abraham, God brings about this great nation of Israel. And their main purpose in life is to be a blessing to a fallen world. They're meant to be a light in a world. They're meant to be sort of a proclamation for people's hearts to come back to God. And this is through their word and deed. It's the very way they carry themselves and the very way they speak to other people. The whole sort of pretense behind the nation of Israel is yet another opportunity for people to come back to God and to be loved by God, the one who created them. The story of Israel is interesting. It's much like the modern church in Scripture. They have a bit of a hit and miss record of being a blessing to the world. And so the rest of the Old Testament chronicles how much of this is going on, the sort of the goods and the bads, and the rejection that takes place. Again, we sort of see humanity like builds up this rejection towards God. However, God being God, loving, caring, and patient, that doesn't stop him from keeping his promise in the earlier chapters of Genesis. He promises to be a God who blesses the people of the earth. And the beautiful thing about God is that he's a God that always keeps his promises. And so over thousands of years, that story of people sort of running from God and God perpetually making ways for them to know him. He is calling out to them. He sends prophets. He does all of these things so that people will know that the God of the universe loves them and cares for them. All of this is the story that leads us to some of the pages we're looking at today. Over thousands of years, the story of Israel leads us to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. And rather interestingly, I mean, I'm, I know I'm a little early. Christmas is a couple of months away. But remember, Walmart started it in October, so I'm good to go here. Okay? <laughs> We learn how God ultimately made good on his redemptive promise through that bloodline. It's that very, those early promises in Genesis, and then really rooting in Abraham. It's through that bloodline of Abraham that all of those pages of the Old Testament that God gave the world Jesus. That story leads to the very Christ we love today, who once and for all would bless the people of the world by dying for our sins, consequently offering us yet another opportunity to come back to God. And so this is a very brief, obviously. The Old Testament is pretty complicated, and there's lots of stuff, lots of blanks that I didn't have time to share with you today. But that is the overarching theme of what's going on. It is God pursuing a people and perpetually calling them back to himself. And this very brief biblical survey shows us that God's mission, God's care for people, God's love for people, didn't just begin at the cross. It's sort of apex there for, for sure. It reaches its climax in Jesus, and it's, it's upon that sort of declaration to the world that God wants us back with him that the mission of God we are engaged with now comes out of. The mission of the New Testament church is rooted in the cross, but it did not begin there. And so as you read the Bible, I want to encourage you to read it through the lens of the mission of God. And the mission of God is just a very fancy way of saying his relentless pursuit of people, all people, including us. Try to see God's redemptive grace. The best way I can describe this, it's really the only way I like to describe it, is it's sort of like a small wave of the ocean. All of these, these small actions of the Old Testament, God speaking to Abraham, and setting him apart and talking about what he's going to do there. There's sort of like small little ripples in a big body of water. Small waves of the ocean that become like a, a massive promise to Noah. And what happens is, is they build and build in strength as the story of God unfolds in the Old Testament. They build in strength and eventually become this like tsunami of grace when Jesus arrives on the shores of the New Testament world. It's like a pent up wave that crashes 
in first century Judaism to declare to the world that Jesus has come. And God is going to once and for all mend what was broken in the garden. And so understanding mission like this is important because it clearly shows us that mission has never been an afterthought on God's heart. It has not been. The whole nature of the Bible is communicating this theology. It shows us we have never been an afterthought in God's heart. And this is why it's somewhat challenging at times, and we might even say a bit confusing, that for some people, it is just an afterthought. It is so central to the story of God, yet at times can be so, so not important or neglected in our own lives. It's an afterthought if it's a thought at all. And for some of us, if it is a thought, it's a bit of a paralyzing one because of the overwhelming amount of fear associated with, with maybe talking to somebody or, or blessing somebody, serving them, uh, sharing with them what Jesus has done for you. But I guess what I want to begin to talk about these weeks, in, today and over these next weeks, is that no matter where you look, the story of the Bible shows us that God takes his pursuit of people very seriously, so seriously, that he is actually compelled to act in incredibly sacrificial ways for it. He actually dies for it. He gives his son up to accomplish it. And you, are, you probably know that today is the second Sunday of the month, so we take communion today. It's, it's perhaps the greatest evidence of how seriously God takes the mission. He puts his son on the cross for it. And we're going to get to that here in just a couple of minutes. But before we do that, I want to I say a couple of things. Before we look at how seriously Jesus takes God's mission through the, through the table, I want you and I to ask yourself a question. When you think about the seriousness of the way God sees the world and his love for it, we have to ask the question, do we see the world that seriously, our neighbors, and do we care for them in the same way? I'm not arguing that we can love perfectly as God can, but we have been created in his image. That means we can love like God. It doesn't mean we can love exactly like God, but it means we can love like him, and we can care for people like him. So when you think about your life, when I think about mine, have you and I made the blessing that God has sort of poured out to the world through certain people and eventually in Jesus, have we sort of forged the same desire in our hearts to share the good news of Jesus through word and deed with others like God has? In other words, do you live in a very sent way like Jesus lived? Because that's what this teaching in John tells us. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. Now, in a room this size, there's probably a healthy dose of yes and no's, meaning there's probably some of us who are very confident in sharing our faith. There are probably some of us that might be a little apprehensive. There might be some of us who are like maybe outright afraid of it. And I saw two people dip out immediately when I talked about evangelism and they bolted. There goes one right now. <laughs> just messing with that's Tom, I did. God always provides. <laughs> right? Fear is a good it can be a big thing. It can be a big thing. But it shouldn't be a driving thing. And that's because think about this. The, the command Jesus gives us to carry on the mission of God, it feels like a big task. I recognize the grandiose nature of this. It is one that we truly cannot accomplish on our own, and I actually believe it's been designed that way. Meaning, this was never nothing in the Christian faith is meant to be done in isolation on our own. And so thankfully, when we talk about this task, we'll begin to talk about it. God gives us this great gift to get this job done. He gives us the power of his son. He gives us the presence of his Holy Spirit. He gives us the church family to support each other and encourage each other in the same mission. The bottom line here is we are not meant to undertake this mission alone in any single way, nor should we. And so if you are sort of in isolation and alone on this, that might be part of the problem. I have found that one of the best ways to, to sort of get a bearing for how to be a blessing in your world is to be around others who are and to hear about their successes and their perceived failures. And I say perceived failures because if you are faithful to bless people through word and deed, that is a success in and of itself. It doesn't matter what outcome is produced there. 
Our fidelity to this is what pleases God. Producing fruit is not our job. We cannot do that. However, being faithful is something we can do. And so when you believe in the gospel, when you believe that you are sort of, when you believe the gospel enough to care about it, to root yourself in a local church family, community, and to combine our efforts in this church family, to serve our community, to serve our neighbors, to serve our world, to serve wherever God leads us, what happens is we realize we're not alone when we hear a message like this. We actually have the full force of the God in heaven behind us and the men and women of God who are trying to do these very same things. You are not alone in the mission of God. And there are many ways that we can get on God's mission. We'll talk about a few over these weeks. But I'd like for you all to hear about one today that has long been a part of our church family. It really is a great example of one of the ways we can bless and serve people in the name of Jesus with our words and deeds. Some of you will know the name of this because you've been a part of it. Some of you might want to be a part of it after this. Either way, this is a, a ministry called the Palmetto House. And what has happened is it's one of our, our longest standing ministries that we have participated in a restoration. And with that said, I could talk to you about what this is, but I would prefer to have one of our gospel partners and the director of our Palmetto House Ministry Initiative here, her name T.L. She's going to introduce herself properly in a moment. She's going to come up here and share a few words with you about this mission. It's a wonderful way to see how some of God's people serve our community in ways that God has provided. So, T.L., if you would come on down. Hi, my name is Terry Lynn. Uh, a lot of people call me TL for short. You might have noticed me before. I usually sit up there in the third row and I've got mittens on and uh, don't <laughs> <laughs> You think I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not kidding at all. Um, Amen. <laughs> one of the first things you learn in Public Speaking 101 is don't tell your audience how nervous you are or how public speaking is just not your thing. So I'm not going to go into that today. <laughs> I'm here today to talk about Palmetto House. Palmetto House is transitional housing for single adults, and it's in Daytona Beach. Uh, the purpose is to facilitate homeless individuals to permanent housing. Uh, Palmetto House is the home of two 87 residents. They have supportive services uh, like goal setting, life skills, mental health referrals, drug and alcohol um, counseling, that kind of thing. A Palmetto House requires drug screening prior to entry, and then they do random screening about two or three times a month. Um, the residents must comply with strict house rules, including a curfew. Participants must make progress in meeting their established goals, and drug and alcohol are, are not forbidden, are forbidden. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like that. Okay, all, all residents must have a source of income. Palmetto House offers one meal a day. There are about 30 churches that are involved in churches and organizations that put together a meal once a month. Here's where we come in. We are one of those groups that serve a meal for 50 every second Thursday of the month. And due to zoning, uh, Palmetto House does not have a kitchen, so we have to take it from our home hot uh, and bring it to um, the Palmetto House um, and serve it warm. I mean, we wrap it in towels and try to do everything we can, but there's no kitchen at the Palmetto House. Uh, I've never cooked for more than my family of three. The first time I cooked for 50, it was kind of comical. Um, there are six of us that make up the core group. Um, we have Bev and Bill Kitchen, 
um, Ron and Tekla uh, Force, uh, my husband Paul Brendan, um, make up that group. We prepare and serve each month. It consists of a main meal, two sides, usually bread and salad, drinks and dessert. Um, we also have an outside group that works with us called the Sea Gals, and the Sea Gals uh, have now taken over the main meal, which is wonderful. Um, they put it out on Facebook, and whoever comes, we, they charge $10 a person, and uh, we cook that night, whether it's you know three people or whatever, people, whoever shows up. Uh, last month we had 16, and the month before, we, or last month we had 10, and the month before we had 16. Um, part of the, well, there's a seagull here tonight, Joanne, if you wanna, today, if you wanna wave. Um, she's one of the seagulls that does this. Um, so now we call them seagulls with a cause. The ministry just keeps growing. Restoration has been committed to uh, Palmetto House for about eight consecutive years. Um, since Sammy and Andrew have left, it's been quite a challenge. Um, they've left quite a void here. If your passion is cooking, serving, ministering to the residents, we have a place for you. Many months were shorthanded. I find it most rewarding to get to know the residents. I've been doing this for about two years now, and I look forward to uh, seeing my friends at the Palmetto House each month. We get so much out of our visits. The meals not only provide nourishment for these folks, but allows them to concentrate on their sobriety and their work. They, they focus on meeting their goals. Food, food is just one less thing they have to worry about. Palmetto House is an amazing place. It's a community of people all striving for a better life. Uh, we just recently started a recycling program that was pretty rocky at first. I had a couple calls saying, they're throwing the garbage in the bins and you know we try to educate but it, it's hard but um, last week I had a call that they said uh, two more bins please it's like yes it's working uh, we're the residents are so appreciative they meet us at our cars to help us carry the food in it's a special place they have us uh, they've developed a sense of community that some people have never had that before um, and we have the opportunity to cook and serve a home-cooked meal and really make a difference in their lives. Um, I've got two short stories. Do we have time for two? Um, you kind of hesitated there. <laughs> 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 okay, I'll be fast. One and a half. My, <laughs> my first story uh, is about a woman named, I'll call her Amanda. She said she used to, uh, she asked me if, if I had seen the ladies uh, walking the streets of A1A, I, and I really didn't know what she was talking about, um, and she said she used to be one of them. She was a streetwalker, a prostitute. Uh, it especially hit, hit home to me because um, she was around my daughter's age, and my daughter's 28. Uh, Amanda said uh, Palmetto House saved her. I thanked her for sharing her story, and she thanked me for listening, and then she touched my arm and said, Thank you for really listening. On Mondays, uh, Be Beverly Kitchen and I go to, we work at United Methodist Church um, issuing homeless IDs. Um, and there is a guy there, his, I'll, I'll call him Dennis, that used to come every Monday. He would sit and talk, and I would talk to him while he ate his lunch. Um, he had a job, a part-time, occasionally, uh, occasionally driving a drunk dump truck. His boss let him sleep in the back of the dump truck. And I told him about Palmetto House and even called the supervisor and s scheduled an appointment there, but Dennis never followed up. 
Babs always, uh, I was really, really disappointed. Um, Bab is always teaching me, they're just not ready. You can't help someone that doesn't need, want help. So uh, we didn't see Dennis for a couple months, and then on Thursday when we went to Palmetto House, um, here popped in, he burst into the kitchen and said, I'm here, I'm at the Palmetto, Palmetto House, um, and I'm doing well because of you. Um, I have a bed to sleep in and food to eat, and he gave us um, a big hug. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's all part of the plan. A Bible verse that comes to mind is Matthew. For I was, it's out of Matthew, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. We are called to help those, those we are called to help those who are less fortunate than we are. How can you help? There's many ways you can help. Uh, right now the biggest need is to set up backup people, a backup crew. Uh, when one of the core people is out of town. Because uh, when someone's out of town, all we can do is serve and we don't get a chance to talk or minister to the, to the residents. When you leave here, uh, there's a takeaway on the little table outside and I'll be available for any questions or comments. And I think um, the core group would be uh, Taylor and Ron and um, Bill and Beverly are available too. Um, your involvement would be a blessing. It's so rewarding, and I see the benefits every single time we are there. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Really appreciate that. And uh, on the way out, you'll see there's a table there with some information, a sign-up sheet, and uh, you can also use a connection card if you just want to have us send you information. You can just write Palmetto House on that, and we'll go ahead and get that to you um, after our time today. So let me sort of wrap up here today. The uh, That ministry, the Palmetto House, is is just one of the ways that you can begin to take your next steps on Jesus' Jesus's mission. And the reason why I say one of the ways is because What's beautiful about mission is that the way we serve, the way we share, the way we bless others in the name of Jesus is, is usually as unique as we are. Because God has this uncanny ability to connect the way we, he's created us, our life experiences, our passions, our struggles, the people that we have sort of interacted with, the places we have lived, all of these things sort of make us who we are. And what's interesting is God uses all of that stuff, often in very unique ways, so that we can help people understand and get the good news of Jesus, that God has come through Christ and he is offering peace and hope to those who are looking for it. So what I'm trying to say here is that if you are in Jesus, you are already on his mission, and you are likely already rooted in the place where he wants you to serve. This is how it is with most of the things of God. The, the tools are already there. The question then becomes, are we aware of who we are in Jesus and what he is leading us to do? And so remember, as we wrap up today and begin to think about the communion table, people have never been an afterthought in God's heart. And I want you to remember that, that th that reality should make the same true for us. People should not be an afterthought in our lives, in whatever way God leads us to serve them. If you have questions about the mission of God, please let us know that in that connection call. We want to help you get that figured out. Now, I want to leave you with this. If you need further proof for how seriously God takes his mission of redemption, then let me just call your attention to the communion table, which is where we're going ahead right now. It is the greatest example we have of how seriously that God, God takes this stuff. I mean, he wanted to be reconciled to us so substantially that he provided a way for us through his son. And I like to say a lot of things about the communion table, more than I have time for usually. 
What I love about the communion table is that this is the main way Jesus asks him to remember his life and death by. Out of all the things he did, I want you to think about this. The way he told us, the first century disciples and us to this very day, is to do this in remembrance of him. The way that he loved and lived and sacrificed. And so what I'm trying to say here is there is no greater way to honor Jesus than to live your life in the same sacrificial way for others. Every time you serve, every time you embrace the redemptive mission of God, own it in your own heart and, and live it out for others, you are literally remembering what Jesus has done. You are be becoming like Jesus when you serve and care for people the way he has. And so I pray as we move to the communion table that you would ask God to compel your heart to act for others in the very same way that he has acted for you. And as we do, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his mission? And what is it that you will do about it? Pray with me as we transition to the table.